Hey, it's Greg Brady. Thanks for checking out the Toronto Today podcast for Wednesday, March the 2nd. Well, as you might imagine, a lot of balls that we're juggling right now. Gas prices are going to shoot up overnight. You want gas today. If you're listening to us on Thursday, I hope you filled up your tank. We told you. We tried to warn you. Uh, that's not. That's like Sunday morning quarterback, not Monday morning quarterback. We're trying to be ahead of the curve here, not behind it. Fill up that tank. Uh, you'll save yourself like eight bucks, <laughs> maybe more than that, given the astronomical price of gas. Uh, so we touch on that during the show as well. The latest on uh, Russia in Ukraine and a brilliant columnist that I thought made some amazing points. And I talk as well about the concept of a no-fly zone in Ukraine and whether that actually is a detriment to the Ukrainian people. It's an angle I don't know that it's getting talked about enough, but I've seen it discussed and I'm kind of on the side of the people saying this isn't the right thing and it could escalate things militarily very, very quickly. Our weekly chat with Sabina Vora Miller, pharmacologist, and our Chatterbox segment as well. It's a busy Toronto Today, and it starts now. Let me go here and talk about Russia-Ukraine. Quite obviously, this conflict and uh, the fact that there isn't much deterring either side from their intensity. No one's, uh, you know, waving any white flags anytime soon. So this is going to go on and on and on again. Uh, But I want to update you on some of what's happening. Uh, There will be more talks tonight between Russia and Ukraine and a second round of peace talks. The Kremlin has a Russian delegation there. Uh, They're on, uh, I think, the uh, Belarusian border with Ukraine. And uh, Belarus is kind of, you know... Wink, wink, nudge, nudge, buddies with uh, with Russia. I know they're their own independent nation, but it's uh, very much a puppet dictatorship. And uh, Putin's thrilled uh, with with the guy that runs Belarus, uh, Lukashenko. So um, the Kremlin says we're going to have our people there uh, and a major senior aide to uh, Vladimir Putin will be there and will be Russia's top negotiator. Again, the negotiation is pretty simple to me. You have to leave right now. You have to stop destroying our major cities, dropping bombs on civilians, destroying infrastructure, destroying real estate that people own or rent, the matter, and uh, and you have to go. And then we can talk. But <laughs> I, there's not much that Ukraine can navigate here and negotiate uh, and and give back. Okay. Leverage is really important. Sometimes you have leverage going into a contract negotiation. If you ever had a job and somebody else offers you a job and you say, ah, this is I can go back to my job and say, I want a week's vacation. I got order." Ukraine doesn't have any of that right now. They have no leverage because the Russians will not stop the bombing. And if anything, they've upped the ante a little bit. And I'll talk about that uh, as the morning continues and as this segment continues, uh, no less. So they're going to talk tonight where that goes. I don't have a clue. I, I like we don't really get a readout of uh, of that conversation, but it's uh, it's not a very civilized process that you're seeing Russia, you know, orchestrate right now militarily. And uh, I don't think there's much debate that they are committing war crimes. I don't think there's much debate at all. If you read the Geneva Convention, if you know anything about it, if you you know, a high school teacher mentioned it once, once, let alone you took it in university, um, dropping bombs on civilians, period. And this is, again, this is, much of this accusation goes back to the United States, too. And they say, well, did you do this in Iraq? Great debate about it. This is why people point to Condoleezza Rice and they use that phrase. They point to Dick Cheney, the vice president of the United States then, and, and they use that phrase and say, is this person a war criminal? Well, they're honest questions. Uh, nobody's been tried, but they're honest questions about it. Okay, they are. Um, Now, where we go with uh, with the United States, speaking of, is going to be interesting. Joe Biden used the first 11 minutes of 62 last night talking about uh, Ukraine and talking about the Russian conflict. He got a lot of points, scored a lot of points, and I thought he was forceful. 62 minutes is a long time for anyone to roll. And I heard a lot of of stuff from Joe Biden that made me roll my eyes. Hey, let's lower the price of prescription drugs. Okay, yeah, I mean, you know, you've... (laughs) How long have you had to do that? You, you, you're, you and your pal Barack are in there for eight years. Did, 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 that, did that go forward once? Did you limit guns at all? Um, um, you know, could, could you do anything with that kind of legislation? Could you be a little more forceful about that? Nah, you had eight years. George Bush had eight years before you, and then Trump had his four. Um, but Joe Biden was forceful about Russia. And again, this is something that it feels like unites the two parties. It feels like it does to some extent, regardless of Trump's blathering on from uh, from Florida. This is some of Joe Biden from the State of the Union address last night. Tonight, I say to the Russian oligarchs and the corrupt leaders 
who built billions of dollars off this violent regime no more. The United States, I mean it. The United States Department of Justice is assembling a dedicated task force to go after the crimes of the Russian oligarchs. We're joining with European allies to find and seize their yachts, their luxury apartments, their private jets. We're coming for your ill-begotten gains. And tonight, I'm announcing that we will join our allies in closing off American airspace to all Russian flights, further isolating Russia and adding additional squeeze on their economy. That's going to be really interesting. Um, I, I think you're going to want to hear me talk to Colin Murray. Colin's a friend of mine, uh, but a BBC radio host. I go on his show on uh, Five Live every Wednesday evening. It's called Midnight in America. So it's about seven o'clock for me. I'll go on tonight and I know we'll talk about this. But Roman Abramovich, the famous owner of Chelsea Football Club, who really turned that club. That, that was a mid-table club in the Premier League. All of a sudden comes in all this Russian money. They spend, spend, spend. They start outspending Manchester United. They spend, outspend Liverpool, outspend Arsenal, and rise to the top. He's out, man. Like, he is. I didn't think this was even real three days ago where I thought, ah, he's just going to sort of turn the, the club over to a charity, a charitable foundation, which he announced over the weekend. He will sell this team, which is a bombshell of a story. You don't have to be interested in sports, and you may have heard who Roman Abramovich is but one of the richest men on the planet. And many of the richest men on the planet are in Russia. And that's exactly who Joe Biden's referring to there. Let me get to a really, um, I, I promise I won't make this too in the weeds with uh, with tactical stuff to do with war. But a lot of people are talking about, um, Boris Johnson got very much assailed by a question yesterday from a uh, Ukrainian journalist. And I want to play you the question, but I also think the question is sort of, it's not taking the big picture into effect because you think, okay, we're talking about women being afraid, children being afraid. Those are things. Those are things. And men are afraid too. Who's kidding who? She invokes more women and children in this. Boris Johnson's in Poland right now. Many world leaders are. I think there's some question. I think there's some question whether Justin Trudeau should be closer to this conflict while not being in Ukraine. And she basically calls him out for not being in, in Ukraine. Um, the journalist to uh, British Prime Minister Boris Johnson. Here's the question. It's about a minute, so stick with it. But then I, I don't I don't agree with the logic of where she's going with it, and I'll tell you why on the way back. Here's Boris Johnson fielding off. You won't hear Boris Johnson. This is just like she's, she's just letting him have it for about a minute here, but it's important audio because I think it goes somewhere after that. So you're talking about the stoicism of Ukrainian people, but Ukrainian women and Ukrainian children are in deep fear because of bombs and missiles which are going from the sky. And Ukrainian people are desperately asking for the West to protect our sky. We are asking for the no-fly zone. We are saying in response that it will trigger World War III. But what is the alternative, Mr. Prime Minister? To observe how our children are, instead of, mis instead of uh, planes, are protecting NATO from the missiles and bombs? What's the alternative for the no-fly zone? We have planes here, we have air defense system in Poland, in Romania. NATO has this air defense. At least this air defense could shield the Western Ukraine. So this, these children with women could come to the border. It's impossible now to right. cross the border. There are 30 kilometers of lines. Imagine crossing the border with a baby or with two children. I'm so glad that Samantha Power is coming here to the border from the Polish side. Let her come to the border from Ukrainian side and see that. Britain guaranteed our security under Budapest memorandum. So you're coming to Poland. You're not coming to Kiev, Prime Minister. You're not coming to Lviv because you're afraid. Because NATO is not willing to defend. Because NATO is afraid of World War III. But it is already started. And these are Ukrainian children who are there taking the hit. Okay, there's three quick things there. One, there's a ton of emotion. That's a journalist talking to uh, Boris Johnson. Um, and uh, there's a ton of emotion. I understand it, okay? It, it, you know, emotions are incredibly high. Tension is so thick. You can imagine being right on that border uh, of Ukraine right now. A remarkable remark. And we've seen all the images, and they've all made us feel uh, very viscerally. The second part is uh, the logic of this does not make sense. 
And I don't think it favors the Ukrainian people to have a no-fly zone at this stage, and I'll explain why. And there's backup in this clip coming. Three, you're a journalist. You talked for two and a half minutes. You can't do that. You got to let the guy answer the question at a certain point in time, okay? Like, you, you can't get a little unhinged there. I know it's it's emotion, but you have to let him answer the question. Let him, because I didn't even have time to play it. Okay, he answered then for about seven minutes after that, and she kept trying to interrupt him. If you ask a question, let somebody answer. Sometimes people say that to me. They're like, you're letting such and such say this. I'm like, you want me to interrupt them? You want me to hang on? That's not what the job is. That's not what you're supposed to do. It's a conversation. I wish she'd I wish she'd backed off a little bit, made it a little less personal and said, give me a reason why you're not doing this. And here's where on Good Morning Britain this morning, Defense Secretary Ben Wallace does. And I this is going to get addressed by Canadian, uh, you know, politicians as well. It has to be. And he says a no fly zone does not do the Ukrainians any good right now. I am no different from anybody else. The other part of the no fly zone is if you have a no fly zone, neither the Ukrainians nor the Russians can fly. Uh, and that means one of the few areas that the Ukrainians have or military capabilities to reach the Russians at longer ranges would be taken away from them. And it would favor the overwhelming ground force of the Russian forces. Those armored columns you see, uh, those uh, you know, long range missiles, which they have huge numbers of missiles and artillery are all ground forces. They would continue to bombard. They would, those armor columns would be able to move far more freely than they do now because the Ukrainians could not fly and attack them from the air. That's it. A no-fly zone works both ways. Ukrainian planes can't go in the air. We're already talking about whether Ukrainians should put planes up in the air and shoot, out, shoot up the Russian convoy. You've seen the drone footage um, of it, okay? Um, you've got to be logical about this, and you can't escalate this conflict. Right. We heard the word, the N word nuclear. We heard that word on Sunday and it made everybody shift in their seats a little bit. OK, you've got to not escalate this it, it, just a week in. OK, so it's pretty sensible to say, let's tone down the rhetoric a little bit and no fly zone. The Russians will send their planes up. So what's supposed to happen? The U.S. military is going to start shooting down Russian planes. Where do you think that's going to lead us? Is that is that uh, does that calm the waters or is that considered escalatory? Does that then put the U.S. in direct military conflict with Russia? Of course it does. You cannot have right now, right now, a military war with U.S. troops, U.S. planes, NATO planes, and Russia. Okay? You can't. I know that there's a perspective that the Ukrainians are going to get slaughtered by Russia once Russia puts the full power of their army into this, this progress. you got to stay focused and play the long game here. You have to. You have to. You cannot dramatically increase the risk of a widespread, quote unquote, World War Three or any kind of nuclear exchange with Russia. So the idea of a no fly zone for me, a non-starter. I want to play you quickly. I mentioned Chelsea potentially selling Roman Abramovich, selling the soccer team. I think a lot of athletes and people in the sports world are are getting a lot of unfair questions about this war. I think it's one thing to say, hey, Alexander Ovechkin, your buddies with Vladimir Putin. You got a picture of him on your Instagram. You look like your pals. What do you think of this? Let him weigh in. He gives his answer. That's it. He's moved on. Then he's not avoiding the question. Thomas Tuchel is the manager for Chelsea Football Club, and he was asked about what he thought it felt like to go to war yesterday, and he kind of blew up. He's like, enough's enough. Don't equate sports with war. I'm, this isn't my job to answer these kind of questions. Here's what Thomas Tuchel said, and I don't blame him one bit for this response. Just on how passionately you spoke a moment ago about the, the, the horrors of, of war, how much do you hope that the owner is using any... No, listen, 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 you have to stop. I'm not a politician. You have to stop, honestly. I can only repeat it, and I even feel bad to repeat it because I never experienced war. So even to talk about it, I feel bad because I'm very privileged. I sit here in peace and I do my, the best I can. But you have to stop asking me these questions. I have no answers for you. OK, I know there's people that are going to say, hey, your job's to answer tough questions. Your owner is a Russian oligarch. He pays your salary. Everybody's got a boss and many of us have bosses who have bosses. But at the same time. Tuchel answered the question a couple times, and I see all this. Well, he snapped. Well, he bristled. No, I don't think so. He's defending his territory, saying, I answered this already. Don't make me talk about what my expectation is for someone else to do. It's not a fair question. It doesn't matter if, if, uh, if Chelsea pays him. It does not matter what his boss does at this particular point in time. 
Um, I, I absolutely I, I can't consume enough of and what's happening. Yeah, as hard as it is, right? It's the okay images, to just the stories be quiet and, whatnot, and dribble, if you will, uh, over the last but seven I think days. Tuchel's well within his right to say enough. The State of the Union comes on. I'm not going to talk like, about oh, not what tonight, it's like to be in war. It kind of knows throws you off that, a little bit. I can't um, from advise following Abramovich on what to do or what not to do. I work for the guy. Some of the things that have happened, the idea on what he should say, removing Russia from SWIFT. That's a complicated story, but their central bank reserves being frozen. Responsibility we could go at this time. And we've got a, Everything that's happened in sports, we talked about that on the show. Who are making Russia who are, uh, an international pariah who are culturally? Who just um, they're to going have been to burn born in Russia. Cash they didn't ask for keep this, this, and if they're not going, endorsing 200, it directly, people got to back against, off you know, 19 to 20 million people who are going to fight back out of a nation of 44 million. And one of the best things I read uh, in the last week uh, is on a website, greatpower.us. Uh, and uh, we're joined by Molly McHugh right now, uh, who wrote what I loved so much about it. Uh, it's great to have you on. Thanks for letting us track you down. And uh, when I when I read your um, your column, Fulcrum Abyss Salvation, I just it really spoke to me. So many shocking things have happened in the last seven. The first day kind of went as per usual. And then the, the, the shock was basically from Friday on in terms of Ukraine's reaction and, and the Western world's reaction, Molly. Yeah, absolutely. I think it, you know, when, the, when any war starts, what you see is the, is the flash and the bang. And I think there was a lot of attention at the beginning to what was anticipated to be even more uh, sort of bombardment from the Russian side, from artillery and from planes. Um, but, but in the initial hours, it was the sort of everywhere war, every, you know, even far to the west where it was assumed the Russians would sort of leave alone. Uh, there seemed to be bombing or action. No one could really figure out what was going on um, with all the noise sort of coming through. But uh, I think very quickly it became clear that it was different than what it was assumed uh, it was going to be. Um, most importantly, that uh, you know, for anyone who spent time in Ukraine, who has worked with Ukraine, who has met any of the Ukrainian uh, army guys uh, and the territorial defense guys, uh, you knew they had spirit and pluck and a ton of resilience. Uh, but to see how the country came together, um, uh, to see how people mobilized, to see that people weren't afraid, they weren't running, there wasn't panic, um, and the way that they were responding uh, to the fact that this is their country and they're going to fight for it, um, I think really rallied international support to the Ukrainian side very quickly in a really important way. There is that sort of sports analogy, isn't it, where you're going, like a boxing match where you're going, it's almost a parallel for Rocky Four. You're going in against a bigger, stronger, more potent force, but if you show emotion, you make the point, um, they had to establish, I'll quote your, your article, they had to establish the conditions to shake Russian certainty and it was fairly obvious that Russian certainty was buckling over the weekend, not just with what they were accomplishing militarily, but all the economic circuit, all the canceling of, of their of, in essence, their economy. It's been it's been torpedoed. Absolutely. You know, for years and years, uh, especially since sort of 2007 onward, when we've seen a series of attacks and invasions and stupid things from Vladimir Putin, um, it's sort of been the, hey, guys, when are we going to do something about this mm -hmm. uh, brigade for those of us working around Russia? Uh, and to see how quickly that finally coalesced into action, unified action, clear action, far more action than anybody was expecting. I think what we've really seen uh, in the past few days has been kind of a return of Europe in a way everybody assumed was not possible anymore. Um, which is great for them, great for the transatlantic alliance. Uh, I think there's a lot more that's going to happen in that lane. Um, but the, the mobilization to support Ukraine, I think especially for Europeans, there's a different resonance than for, for those of us over here who, you know, our cities weren't bombarded in World War II. Um, and so just the idea that this was going to happen again, that there would be another invading army sort of taking over a country for absolutely no reason and that civilians were going to be in the way, uh, for Europeans, this was a message that um, that was sort of, no, no, we're not going to do this again. So I think seeing that action is absolutely critical. Um, and it's given the Ukrainians uh, energy to carry forward. Molly McHugh is our guest. She's senior advisor at Stand Up Republic Foundation, uh, which I'll give you the Twitter handle out in a little bit, and lead writer at greatpower.us joining us on Toronto today. Molly, are there parallels with uh, the Afghan conflict from the late 70s into the early 80s? I remember living in the States at the time, post 9-11, the U.S. goes in there, and a lot of people are like, well, this won't take long. And you're like, I don't know. The Soviet Union tried with all their might, all their military might uh, in the 80s to, to get things done. I know it's a different terrain. I know it's a different 
culture, but are, are there any parallels to draw with how difficult that was and how the Soviets were pushed back there? I think there, there's a couple of parallels. I mean, obviously, the, the, the main difference being the dispersed uh, terrain in Afghanistan, which is just difficult and hard. Uh, and in Ukraine, the, the place where the Russians will probably bleed the most is urban warfare, which is always to the advantage of the people who are holding the city as opposed to the people invading it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think the, the parallels are sort of the, just the scrappy resolve of the country, which is sort of like, eh, you go ahead, you invade with your big stupid army, and we've got ways that we know we're going to have, we're, we know how to deal with that. And the Ukrainians have been, um, you know, they've been preparing for this for, for the eight years they've been fighting this war with Russia, which before was contained to the east and now is all over. Um, in a way that uh, I think everybody sort of underestimated exactly how much they had learned from that fight and from having to make the hard decisions they have made, mm. rebuilding their, their entire yeah. army during a war, um, which they had to do because Yanukovych left it sort of completely hollow when he fled to Russia. Mm. Um, so I think the, the resolve piece is a really big one. And the other one is an overconfident Soviet slash Russian army. Um, yeah. the, there's a huge Russian military machine, obviously, around in pointing at Ukraine. Um, but where are the supply lines? Like, where yeah. is the organization? Apparently, they're using open radios as comms, which is just bananas, if you think about it. And, you know, it's like one minute there's this giant column of armor heading for Kiev, and then it's like, oops, ran out of gas. And you're like, really? Like, what? Are you, are you kidding? So I think, you know, all of this is to say, not to, say, not to underestimate the, the threat that still remains, um, but the staggering effort sort of stumbling forward yeah. thing, uh, is not giving Russian soldiers confidence. And, and even in, in Russian doctrine, you know, the key thing they write about is spiritual resources, like the will of, of your people to fight. And you see none of that on the Russian. No, side. no. There's soldiers that, that just seem un- absolutely oblivious and unaware of what they've gotten themselves into. And the Ukrainians know what they're into. Uh, and they've been ready. I got to leave it there. I hope we can maybe have a longer chat at some point, but your column was borderline brilliant. Thank you for joining us on the show. Thank you so much. I played you that Thomas Tuchel clip earlier, uh, the Chelsea manager basically saying, look, there's only so much I can say. I've given you the answer a bunch of different times. And as I've said before, we've all got bosses. Bosses have bosses. Business is complicated sometimes. I've got a lot of friends that work for, say, Fox Sports in the United States. And they say, what am I supposed to do about Rupert Murdoch? I mean, everybody has those has those conflicts. We're seeing them really rise to the forefront now in the sporting world and just some remarkable things, many of them based in Europe. There's a few things here in North America we're doing a little bit differently, but um, the ball really got rolling with uh, UEFA pulling the Champions League out of St. Petersburg, uh, which is, again, outside of the Super Bowl. It's the biggest one-day event every year, and you can make the case it's bigger uh, globally, that's for sure. Not necessarily maybe even in North America, but all throughout Europe, the UEFA Champions League final everybody that's an event uh, galore that's a bucket list thing to attend for a lot of uh, a lot of fans uh, for sure Colin Murray uh, is a friend of mine and a uh, BBC five live radio host I often go on his show and I will tonight uh, with the time difference called Midnight in America that's not an ill-fated follow-up to a super tramp album they had their mistakes <laughs> there's no doubt about that uh, <laughs> that's not right it's not it's uh, b- breakfast and midnight two very very uh, different things and Colin Murray uh, joins very, me very very different by the way um, we talked earlier about uh, the uh, baseball labor dispute Colin also for our listeners who aren't familiar maybe the most massive Toronto Blue Jays fan working in sports media that doesn't work here in Toronto you've spent like, do you even want to count how much of your own money you've spent to follow the Blue Jays around, attend playoff games, come when they're hot, come when they're cold, sit with like 14,000 people in April sometimes? Not enough. Not enough. And I miss it so much um, with, with COVID restrictions now. It just feels like so, so long. So just been watching what was left of the baseball season from here in the UK. But um, yeah, miss it so much. And well, that that's another subject, not as important at the moment, but looks like baseball's shooting itself in the foot yet again feels that way uh and i know we'll uh yeah we'll talk when uh, when they get closer and they work this out in april um tell our listeners i, I kind of documented it earlier i mentioned thomas tuchel and i don't think i see the coverage of it oh he snapped he blew up i think he was very logical about it and said look i'm doing what i can i'm saying all i can say and we all have those sort of i wouldn't call them shackles but 
somewhat restrains. His boss is the owner of Chelsea, Roman Abramovich. Um, he, there's no other way to just, he is a Russian oligarch. He's the very person that Joe Biden said, we're coming after some of you people last night in America's State of the Union address that I know you'll address on your show tonight. He's worth $13 billion. Emphasize for our audience him coming in, buying uh, Chelsea, basically a mid-table, you know, decent club in the in the 90s. But when he buys that team, Colin, and injects cash into them, they become basically a global sports superpower and brand, don't they? Yeah, that's absolutely right. And under Jose Mourinho, they go on to win absolutely everything. They become an absolute force in football. And some would say that is your kind of like, that your exhibit A, your 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 starting point for what we see as modern day football, the rise of the Premier League to become the biggest league in the world. As for Thomas Tuchel, you have to have sympathy for him. Mm-hmm. He he's not running the club. He he manages this team and he manages them so well. You know, it, it also came at a time when the, the the big game was the League Cup final. I was there uh, uh, covering it actually at Wembley on 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 Sunday. Chelsea against Liverpool. Can you imagine that? The first time Wembley's been sold out in two years because of COVID restrictions. And it's Roman Abramovich's team with all the tragedy that's unfolding in in Ukraine. Inside the stadium is where I was. That's all I can talk about. There was as many Ukraine banners and Mm -hmm. flags and, and, and sentiments in the Chelsea end as there was in the Liverpool end. There was a wonderful, very emotional coming together of all fans in support of Ukraine. Colin Murray's our guest joining us in Toronto today. Um, how how shocked are you that we go from the weekend, right? Wednesday, we've got uh, a, a military invasion of Ukraine by Russia. OK, let's see how we all react to this over the next 48 hours. But that that it moves, the, the conversation moves, Colin, from, well, and I, I had a lot of people say, well, OK, so he's passing stewardship and care. Maybe he's just trying to, you know, uh, you know, free himself while the heat is on. But going from there to an outright sale of the club was unthinkable a week ago at this time, wasn't it? Along with so many other things that have happened in sport. Yeah, I, I, absolutely. It, it is moving at, at such a rate. But as you know as well, from from covering the vastly more important part of this, which isn't sport, um, it changes every two, three minutes. It changes every 10 minutes. You're constantly trying to keep up to date with it. As for what Abramovich does, he is famously secretive, so we don't know. We won't get a comment from his people of what's happening day to day. So you're left to look for, as I always say, what do we hear and what do we know? Well, we, we, we hear that he's trying to sell the club from uh, a Swiss billionaire who's been offered the chance to buy it. So we could probably assume that that's the situation at the moment. So, but as you said, it moves, it moves so fast. And there's a great quote, Greg, which, which is football is the uh, most important of the least important things. You know, and you could probably apply that to all of sport. There's so many more important things going on on now. Uh, you could lift 100 before you'd get to sports. And and when we open up and we tune in this morning to your show, we, we want to know what's happened overnight. We want to know about those families that are fleeing to the border, families being separated, those losing losing loved ones in, in, a, in a, a horrendous war that's unfolding before our eyes. So it's the most important of the least important things, football. But there is a symbolism to it, isn't there? There is, mm-hmm. uh, I think the, the obvious one to point out is FIFA's U-turn, which has been seen by so many people, Greg, as, as tone deaf, you, you know, you're, you're going into a situation where the Russian football team, they're not just, they don't just have a playoff game coming up for the 2022 World Cup. They've got a playoff game against Poland. They've got a playoff game against Poland on the western border of Ukraine, a place that already had 1.5 million Ukrainians living there, a place that has such a soft border with Ukraine to start with, brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers. And the idea that that game could take place under any type of soft sanction just seemed so tone deaf immediately to the entire footballing world. And federation after federation come out and said, not on our watch. They've obviously U-turned a complete ban now of Russia. But the fact that it was even considered, yeah, another one of those moments where the football family in general seems to feel like UEFA is just so out of step. It, it feels like a real step up, though, for FIFA. I remember the day driving in to do the show yeah. when when Russia and Qatar were awarded the World Cups, and you're like, 
Well, that all seems a little funny. Turns out it was. Um, And they have had no problem. They've never, you know, they've not banned Iran. They've not banned Saudi Arabia. You and I grew up as kids. I reference this a lot. And South Africa was not allowed in the Olympics. And South Africa was not allowed to qualify for World Cups until basically they, they scuttled apartheid rightly so, and Nelson Mandela became their president. And then South Africa was not just allowed back in, they hosted a World Cup that you went to uh, a dozen years ago. But this, I didn't see it coming, to be honest. I I thought FIFA would kind of quake in their boots a little bit, look at some of the the financial obligations. They kicked the women out of the the Euros, the women's Euros uh, is is in your country this July, and they've kicked the Russian women out of that. So this isn't just the men, like across the board, Russia's been kicked out of hockey tournaments by the IHF. Again, I I just think it's such unprecedented times, and I don't know the way back in. This isn't going to be a quick four-month ban or a six-month ban, it doesn't feel like. Yeah, there's a great story that that circulates in British radio of a of a, a big music presenter back in the '80s who was was called in an office just before his show and was told he was he was going to be let go, and he then went on air and resigned <laughs> five minutes later. This has the feeling of that. FIFA said that you can play under a different name, that you can go and play a game without fans. Given what's happening, let's just remember the geography of this Russia on the eastern border and more, but the eastern border with Ukraine, the western border is, is Poland. The, the idea that they thought in March that a team under any type, any type of connection to Russia could play Poland, who will at that stage have perceived over a million more Ukrainians across the border to reunite with a family already living there. The idea that they could play football was rebuffed by everybody else. They had no choice. It wouldn't have happened had they have said they wanted it to happen. Poland would mm. not have put a team out. Whoever won between the Czech Republic and Sweden would not have played Russia if they'd have been given a buy through. So they had no choice. In terms of beyond that, it mm. feels like they're just getting into line with logic. I got one more for you. I wonder where it lands for you and, and wonder what the public perception is in the UK. What do we do with individual athletes? What do we do with a, with a Daniel Medvedev, who's 26, born in Moscow, and is, is the best young tennis player out there? Once once Nadal and Djokovic slide out of the way, this guy's going to win a lot of Grand Slams. There's a lot of great female Russian tennis players. Like, I, I, I struggle sometimes. What are they supposed to say? And, and we go back to the Thomas Tuchel argument. How adamant can they be knowing they've got family, they've got friends, they've got, you know, uh, roots in Russia. And I know when hockey players came over here, Colin, and either defected or came the proper way, they were always hesitant to criticize Russian politics because mm-hmm. there's, um, there's concern for, for what they've left behind in, in their mother country. It's, uh, I don't know what we do with the Medvedevs of the world individually. It's an easy call, I think, to ban the teams. It's harder to ban individual athletes at the, at the individual sport, isn't it? I think that's absolutely right. I think that's 100% right. I don't think you can have a blanket rule across every sport. So take Formula One, who made the decision very, very quickly that there wouldn't be a Russian Grand Prix. Stands the reason. It's logistics more than anything. You're just going to be able to. Mm-hmm. You could want to have six Grand Prix in Russia next month. You're not going to be able to do that. It's that simple. You don't have the airspace to do it. So but they made that decision very quickly, and they said, here we go. Now, they've, they've looked as well. And they said they won't ban the drivers from competition. So have they made a strong stance? Have they taken away the chance for Vladimir Putin to stand in a pit lane and legitimize himself? Yes. Have UEFA taken away the chance of Vladimir Putin to kick a football about, uh, you know, in St. Petersburg before the Champions League final, watched across the world to legitimize himself? Yes. These are all hugely important things. Is it... If you had a team from Russia, now it was an easy decision for UEFA, by the way, because there were no teams left in the Champions League who were from Russia. There was no teams left yeah. in the Conference League who were from Russia. There was one team, one team left in, in the Europa League who've been expelled now. But those are big symbols. But when you deal with the individual sports people, you're right. And I'll give you one name. You, you say Medvedev. What about Andrei Rublev? Who right. on the very first day was the first person in all of sport that I that I, I that inspired that we all saw walk up to that camera after he, he won his, his match in Dubai and wrote no war plays on the camera. How brave of that young lad to do that. Do you turn around to him now and say that you can't play tennis? It's really difficult. They'll play under neutral flags. They won't be allowed their teams in the Davis Cup and the Billy uh, Jean King Cup. That seems right. 
But I, I think it is. You're right. It's a balance for all sport, different sports to, 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 to mm. find. And I would point out our big sports aren't necessarily theirs. So ice skating, for example, was absolutely huge in Russia. Yeah. They've just moved to exclude them from all international ice skating competitions. You could argue that will have a bigger impact on Russian television than two or three top tennis players. So it is very nuanced. BBC Five Live uh, radio host, television host, uh, Colin Murray, uh, our guest. We'll have you on again when uh, we get closer to uh, a Blue Jays season. But uh, thank you for making yeah, the time for me. Time, hopefully. And I'll chat with you on your show tonight. Thanks so much for this. Thank you. Uh, let's bring in uh, our regular Wednesday guest. Uh, she's, uh, of course, Doctor of Public Health student Sabina Vora Miller. It's great to have you on. You don't have to weigh in on our shorts discussion, but spring is coming. Like I just, you know, there's people that look like me and Gord that I think we we need to tan on our own before we're seen by members of the general public. I think we should take time to do that. That's my perspective. Well, I have no issues with tanning. Because <laughs> <laughs> already right. tanned, so I have that plus. <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, so everybody's got their own thing going for them. That's uh, that's for sure. So we got a lot to get into. This um, the study from a couple days ago, um, New York Times running it, NPR running it. I, I know how much disinformation is out there. Bad info. I got 100%. But this new study about um, Pfizer's vaccine protection waning in kids 5 to 11. And and I think we talked about the pediatric vaccine for under 5 a couple weeks ago. I know you've got an under 5. I know how this has been the longest wait. Most of us, I hope, close to all of us, haven't forgotten how parents feel about that and the practicality of wanting to get under 5s vaccinated. What did you make of this study that says we, we don't, we've got protection from severity, but we don't have a lot of protection from infection and spread 5 to 11? Yeah, I mean, you know, I think, first of all, uh, I always have the caveat with respect to when something comes out and it's a new study and it's a single study that's showing you some sort of data, right? I mean, I think we have to make sure that we're not basing um, drastic decisions on one single study. Mm-hmm. That's the, uh, the, the idea of evidence-based anything is to make sure we're looking at the totality of evidence. So I don't, I don't want people to, I think, uh, you know, it's caused a lot of anxiety in parents, and rightfully so, but I just want people to take a step back and breathe um, because this is the first study that's saying this, and let's just wait and see for other data coming out as well. Um, I also do have some reservations about the way some of this data was analyzed and presented. I mean, it was a very complicated study looking at, you know, various cohorts within it. Um, but I mean, at the same time, I, I think that it's also important for us to maybe take a step back and look at dosages in, especially in the five to 11. And now given what we know about the dosages in under five, should we you know, need to reconsider this? I'm not entirely sure. And there's a, I think that there, there is, you know, merit here to actually bring this discussion and this conversation up and we should be looking into it. But as you said, it was very, very reassuring to see that we had protection against severe illness, mm. we had protection against hospitalization, and those are some of the key things we need to be looking at. Um, the other thing I want to look at is, to, you know, we have some data showing that vaccinations are preventing things like MIS-C in children, um, as well as long COVID. And, I mean, you know, we don't have that data. So at the end of the day, like, we still see that the vaccines are doing what they're supposed to do in some of the worst outcomes that we don't want in children. And if, you know, if infections are happening, then perhaps that's just something, as long as they're not having the severe illness, they're not having MIS-C, they're not having all of that, then perhaps infections is something that we should be okay with. But again, Mm -hmm. go back to look at the dosages, wait for more data to come. And I just want parents to breathe. Like it's a very stressful time for parents. So let's just, you know, take a step back and 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 know that our children will be OK if they are vaccinated. And and reassuringly, the 12 to 17, they get the same 30 milligram dose as adults. And, and that's only a small decline. So those of us like myself who've, who vaccinated teenagers with the two shots uh, didn't see much of a decline in terms of the effectiveness. And, and th- that way, you know, less less spread, less likelihood of infection uh, and, and a positive case and a positive test than the five to 11 uh, age court age cohort. Exactly. And, and, you know, and we're all also looking to see whether boosters are you know, necessary in these age groups. And maybe what we'll see is that it's actually a three dose series, especially for children who are getting a lower dose that perhaps, you know, you take a lower dose, but you may need three doses to actually mount that, you know, appropriate right. immune response. We're waiting to see that, you know, in the under five. And when we have that data, we'll have a better idea. 
But like you said, it's reassuring for sure in the 12 plus age range. And, and, and under, you know, 5 to 11, we have data to show that it, it, it is preventing severe illness. We'll need to see what happens with the rest of the data as it trickles out. I mean, 5 to 11 just got vaccinated, so we don't have much data to go on. Um, but the data we have shows that it's reassuring against severe illness and, and hopefully also things like missing and long COVID. Sabina Vora Miller is our guest on Toronto today. We, we, I think we ran out of time last week just as we were getting uh, to a car. I think you, you dropped it in um, last minute, so I didn't get a chance to, to go deeper in it. I want to give you the opportunity to do that about the concept of, of a mandate at some point. I've always looked at this and thought, yeah, it'll probably be added to the other seven, eight, nine vac- vaccinations that are required to go to school. But, you know, you can imagine it's, uh, again, something that not every parent, we could get eight parents in a room. And they'd all have varying opinions about about that concept. Flesh out for me, if you can, in our audience, uh, what what you what you see coming and what you're hopeful for. Yeah, I mean, when you look at things like mandates, um, you know, you need to understand what the purpose is going to be, right? And so that's going to drive what you're going to do with this with this mandate, what the duration of the mandate is going to be, et cetera. I mean, if you if you're looking at specifically in children and in schools, I mean, you know, the one thing that we have to remember is that. Parents need time to get uh, comfortable with the vaccine. And, and I mandate when they're put in before anything else is done is going to actually end up working against building trust and confidence. Um, so I think the first step we need to do is build that confidence with parents and make sure that they are comfortable and they're confident that their child should be going, you know, getting the COVID-19 vaccine. That is number one. Very, very important before any mandate talk even happens. Um, but at the same time, I, you know, I think we also need to understand that mandates can help drive things like uptake of vaccination. And so we may need something like this. Um, you know, at some point after we've, we've tried our we, we've tried um, everything we possibly can to build confidence on these vaccines, um, the mandates do help drive, um, you know, vaccine uptake as well. In schools, I mean, you know, I think we have to remember that schools is another place where vulnerable people, um, co- you know, congregate. Children are 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 one of the those in our society that we should be protecting. Um, and we do that with many other vaccines. I mean, if you look at other vaccines that we routinely um, immunized for and, and you have to show proof of immunization when you go to school things like um, you know say for instance MMR rubella yeah. you know, diseases all of these before a vaccine was introduced all of these actually um, had a lower pediatric death rate versus COVID but we still at this point have these as um, you know required vaccinations to go to school so if you're basing it just on pediatric mortality and morbidity then COVID exceeds all of these which we don't know and we don't think of Um, so I think it's important to actually put that into context but again for me mandates is a last step thing we have to make sure we're building confidence because the last thing we want is to um, you know, have these mandates be, you know, implemented in such a way that people's questions are not answered, they're not confident, and then you're actually making it worse in terms of them being confident and comfortable with not just COVID vaccines, but other vaccines down the road. I agree fully with you because I, I, even before there was real world data, even before Pfizer had put it out, we had some politicians, I've named them before, but we had some politicians advocating for it, and I thought, you've, you've got to get this, especially for a six-year-old. It's one thing to say, well, you're going to need this to go to your job as an adult and and i was i i would absolutely plant my sword in the in the, in the stone and say the mandates were a very good thing for us from july through through basically the start of omicron because it created consumer confidence people vaccinated people wanted to be around other vaccinated people it let retail workers people who were working in in restaurants and and at you know selling hot dogs at blue jays games know that they were they were not surrounded by unvaccinated people now with where we're at i know yesterday day one of no qr code i post omicron with all the acquired immunity out there I, i i just i i don't know where we go with it i haven't known where we've gone with it and i feel conflicted about it to a great extent i'm sure a lot of us do yeah i mean it is tricky right there's no clear there's no clear answer over here and i think that is the important part when you look at mandates it has to be done in a very nuanced way you have to look at ethical frameworks when you actually incorporate something like this you have to have a very clearly defined purpose duration all of that in advance, so then that actually guides your conversations. These are not something that can be, you know, easily, uh, yes, we'll do a mandate, no, we won't do a mandate. These are all things that are 
so, so complicated and nuanced. And we should be taking the time to reevaluating it every time there's new data yeah. that comes out. I mean, now we have new data, right, that shows us that maybe the two doses isn't doing much if you're actually having that as your vaccine passport. So what do you do? Do you go back? Do you scrap it? Or do you go and say, well, maybe we should do three doses? I mean, you need to have this constant iteration of them. You have to make sure you're using ethical frameworks to, to you know, guide you. All of this is really important, but these are not, these are tricky conversations. There, there's no clear black or white answer, and I think it also it depends a lot on the setting. I mean, you know, there's one thing about requiring transportation workers. I mean, I, I don't know at the end of the day how much benefit that would have when you mm. require transportation workers to be fully vaccinated versus, say, you know, going to a hospital and a hospital um, or a, a long-term care home and they're having um, a mandate where, where it says every staff who works there should have three doses, right? And so setting is so important as well. These are very nuanced. And I just, I hate that we've come to a point where it's become so politicized and so black and white, and it shouldn't be. We should have full, wholesome conversations on these. Sabina Vohra-Miller is our guest on Toronto Today. So um, you weighed in on data that I mentioned on the show and and put out on Twitter yesterday from Alberta. They've, they got rid of masks in school. They were quite aggressive in doing so. I got all day. I got all day and go can go A to Z on things Jason Kenney and the Alberta government have done wrong in 24 months. I got hours. I We'd run out of time. That said, uh, this this had some um, calculated risk to it. And the response, again, like most things, was political. But hospitalizations and ICU beds have dropped substantially. Um, now, you made the point that may, that a lot of kids may still be masking and teachers may still be masking. But I think that that proves that the choice is actually working out and we're a lot more vaccinated than Alberta. So can we take anything from that from that data in Alberta and say, like you said earlier, breathe it out. We should be able to be OK. And if you are one way masking and you've got your three shots, as David Fisman said earlier this week, you should be good to go. I mean, yes, but at the same time, we're looking at schools where there are children in there who are not yet vaccinated. The uptake of vaccines, you know, in the 5 to 11 age range, I mean, I think only 30% have both doses, right? So that's really, really, really low in terms of vaccine uptake. And then you have those who are under five who are not yet vaccinated. And I think that we are at a point where we have to make sure that we're protecting the people who are not yet vaccinated. Um, and schools are that one setting. And masking, I mean, we have data to show that it actually does prevent transmission of the virus. Um, and we also have data to show that, you know, for the most part, adverse effects of masking are minimal to none. Um, and, you know, we have the Children's Health Coalition who basically still recommends masking just as a layer of protection until we can get all the kids vaccinated. I think, I think you want that, that, that's an interminable amount of time, isn't it? That's what a listener would say. They're screaming at the radio and just saying, we can't, we, if we can't force it on, on parents of six year olds, then you're asking kids to mask for an indeterminate. There's no off ramp whatsoever. Definitely not. I'm okay. I'm not, I, I promise you I'm not. Um, but for me, I think it's just important to make sure that we actually have the vaccines available for the kids who do go to school. I mean, my son is um, not eligible, right? But he's in junior kindergarten yeah um and so that's 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 the point that I'm, I'm trying to make is that once we have these vaccines you know approved for everyone who's six months plus then we will have a conversation about okay we have these vaccines available parents have made their decision and their choices whether they want their child to get vaccinated or not let's take let's consider taking off masking right now because we have low cases low transmission and kids are vaccinated okay so and, it, right now kids are not and you and i would have a very different conversation on masking in children if the vaccine was actually approved for six months plus oh, i think about that all the time i'm like i don't have a four-year-old but I would make the case you don't have a 16 year old and and I might ask what how long you expect my kid who's been in a mask since 14. Does he go till he's 18? Does he go till he's not like I, I don't have an off ramp for him and I want one. Yeah, but I mean, at the same time, you know, when we talk about masking with my child, I mean, we talk about how we have to make sure we're protecting people around us. And that's a concept that he's like understanding from a very young age, you know, um, like we I live with my father who's immunocompromised. And so we're doing things to protect him, it's like, even though, you know, I'm a healthy young person. Yeah. I, 
you know, and I, I wish I could stop masking and I wish I could do certain things, but I live in a community where I have to make sure that I'm not just looking at my own interests, but I'm also looking at the interests of the rest of my community. We are a communitarian society. We should be looking at making sure that our entire society thrives, right? And, and part of that is having responsibilities to make sure that we're keeping people around us safe. Um, and so I, you know, I, I think like this, one of those things that I have these conversations with my child from a very young age where I try and explain like you're wearing your mask to protect yourself, but also to protect others. Um, and, you know, and I think that there's something to be said about doing the right thing for your community. Absolutely. Um, would you, so is the Alberta data encouraging or is it discouraging? Which do you find it? Yeah, I mean, I think with data, I mean, data can be basically used to say whatever you want to say, you know. No, no, well, no, it either goes up or down. It goes up or down. It's a number. Right. But at the same time, like you have like the, the reason why cases are going down is probably because they have now at this point maxed out, you know, infections across the population. Um, at some point, you're running out of people to infect. Right. Infect that's where that's where we are in Ontario, too. Well, I mean, and then you have to wait until um, immunity wanes because immunity does wane, right? Um, and then at the same time, you also have people who are immunocompromised who never mount a response, right? Who right. would likely not mount a response. And we're still trying to bring up um, our therapeutics. We have a couple of things in our arsenal that we can now use for those who are immunocompromised, but that is not yet fully integrated. So we still have that stopgap in place. I mean, I don't know if you saw Biden saying, you know, um, that anyone... Um, can get antivirals at, um, you know, you, you get tested, you get your antiviral and, and done. You're, you're great. You're good to go. Yeah, I loved yeah. it. I, it, was, it wasn't even a conversation we were having a year ago. I'm glad you brought that up. Absolutely. Right. And like, but here in Ontario, well, we don't even have a network, properly inter- integrated network to actually get therapeutics if you are immunocompromised and get COVID, right? And so yeah. there's a difference here as well in terms of are, what, are we doing everything we possibly can to protect those who are immunocompromised. And again, I would have a different conversation with you on masking had we had we had similar um, strategies in place the way U.S. has with point of care. You get tested, you get your antiviral, you're out, you're protected, even if you do get, uh, you know, COVID, if you're com- immunocompromised. We don't have that. In fact, we had drug shortages, severe yeah. critical drug shortages up until literally recently, right? And so we didn't even have anything to offer people who were infected and like that is that is the part that for me as public health i you know i I can't wrap my head around i have to make sure that my community comes along with me kelly Contreras, 640 toronto host uh who will have her show on nine to noon uh following our show on toronto today it's great to have you as always thanks greg i was taking a sip of coffee i expected uh you to go right in the mic. I, yeah, listen, I, I I hear that from management. They're like, shorten up the question. So I did it for once, and and it burned me. As, I apologize. As, it burned me. And uh, no, do not. I am apologizing. I am apologetic. Uh, Mike Torlay, Toronto correspondent for uh, Global National. You get to write off a lot of your gas. I want. It's like people when I used to work in sports radio. They like, oh, you must get a lot of free tickets. People don't think the Drolay family pays for their own gas when you drive that global uh, car around, but you do. I know you do. I don't drive a global car around, <laughs> and I pay for my own gas. Ask for a global car, then. What? There's a bunch of them in the parking lot down below me. Come in and get one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The ones with the logos on them? Yeah. Thank you, but no, I don't think so. Uh, you, as as I enjoy working for Global, and I'm proud of the company. I don't want a branded vehicle. What about a Q? What about a Q107 van? I think I can hotwire it oh, yeah, okay, uh, by the end okay. of the show. Uh, that'd be cool for all, okay. all three of us. Hey, Kelly, let's start with you because sometimes I'll hear uh, you do a topic and I'll be like, "Damn it, I didn't think of that." And by tomorrow morning, this might be old news. And so you've got the uh, you got the benefit of uh, of uh, of sort of foresight that I don't have early in the morning or overnight. So when we see this Russia Ukraine thing atop the news cycle, we're probably not surprised. But I, I wonder what you feeling maybe from the listeners maybe you and your producer danny stover what's the appetite like for more and more of the story because there's the political implications there's the human aspect of war there's there's russia going into financial ruin with them getting basically canceled all over the place like this is a massive story but how how close what's the demand like for your listeners and and even for your audience uh, I think, you know, Ukraine doesn't have to monopolize our, our screens 24-7 to hold our attention. We, they've got it. Mm-hmm. You, we are human beings. We're flexible. And uh, I guarantee we can juggle many priorities in our lives. So we always talk about a variety of things on the show, but Ukraine is going to 
feature prominent for as long as Putin is invading or bombing or terrorizing or occupying Ukraine. We're going to be watching because people are angry. This isn't a scandal that happens once and then fades away. Putin didn't have an affair with a porn star. He didn't wear blackface Mm. or cheat on his taxes. Putin is invading a sovereign (coughs) nation. It's appalling. People are dying. People are leaving uh, by the hundreds of thousands. For as long as this goes on, this story will evolve and the world will be watching. And we won't get tired because mm-hmm. I think the audience, know, you know, four years of Trump monopolizing the news cycle, it didn't get tired. He isn't even president anymore. And he still makes news. COVID's been with us for two years. It, it's still a hot topic. Why? Because every day is different and every day the story evolves. And that's what we're about to see in Ukraine. No matter how things play out, the story's going to evolve. And so we will continue to talk about it. And, and I think people's interest will be there. Hey, that's so well said, Mike. There, like I, you get taught in journalism school, lead local, localize the lead. But even and I know you covered a, uh, a Ukraine demonstration on the weekend. Even if there wasn't that, even if we didn't live in a giant melting pot city with lots of different cultures and there's Russian people here and Ukrainian people here. I just feel like it's a little like 9-11. It's a little like Desert Storm, right, when we were in university. It doesn't have to be very local to grab our attention for these first couple of weeks. Oh, absolutely. And if you think about the way things, people get interested in various conflicts around the world, uh, you know, they, they, they do. And then, you know, if there's a disaster, it sort of wanes within now. Unfortunately, the news cycle is much shorter and within a, a week max. This one, is, it's different because this has such implications around the world. I mean, we're talking about the potential for the third world war if things go in, in, in one direction mm-hmm. or not. But also, you know, you talk about lead local. Look at how look at these protests, not just in Canada, like all across the country, but around the world. The thousands and hundreds of thousands of people showed up in, in protest in every major city, it seems, um, to decry to what Vladimir Putin has done. And besides that, this story is still getting it's unbelievably interesting how it's evolving. Think about how the um, uh, the oligarchs are getting targeted. I was reading about how these oligarchs mm-hmm. are sending their their massive yachts to the Maldives because there's no extradition there. They can send them there and then and keep them safe. Roman Abramovich is is going to have to sell Chelsea. He's trying to sell all of his properties in the UK before they get taken from him. This is uh, the Putin is losing friends quickly very quickly and they are running for the hills and they're realizing that all of the of the assets they have around the world which are um you know making money unlike mm. all the stuff that they have in russia they've got to get rid of and um I, I think people are fascinated by that i certainly am that's mike Drolet uh joining us on chatterbox kelly Cotrero with us as well she's got the kelly Cotrero show of course nine to noon right after we wrap up uh at nine o'clock kelly i think that's fascinating that you mentioned trump because i'm thinking the same thing we're, we're you know we're looking for russians to to say things and we realize in north america that we've got uh not just we are able to speak freely look at the three and a half four weeks that that was happening in ottawa while the olympics were on especially and how freely we were able to speak and criticize and have opinions on this but it's hard right because people um with family in russia athletes entertainers they're all you know i I know you played the clip of uh of brian cox from the sag awards on monday i heard that on your show and it's a it's a dangerous game isn't it to sort of have all these false equivalencies when we're we're thinking of the ukrainian people but there are a lot of people in russia that feel really really hesitant to say anything based on who their government is Well, I think people already uh, are aware of the fact that Putin is a horrible tyrant. And so I think, you know, Ukrainians are being incredibly brave. We have uh, Canadians and Ukrainians here going back to Ukraine to fight. I think Russians are going to have to be just as brave because there's Mm -hmm. no way if they are getting, you know, media that is outside Russia coming into them via social media or, you know, via calls from loved ones that happen to live in Ukraine, there's no way they don't know what's going on. And unfortunately, they're going to have to be brave as well and speak up against (laughs) Putin. They're just going to have to do it. The world is going to have to be very brave right now. I know. I know. You had, I heard your conversation with with Rick Zamperin to some extent um, on uh, on on Ovechkin and Putin and Mike. You mm-hmm. and I were talking about that on the weekend. I, I I can't believe how the sports world has mobilized against teams, kicking them out of you know the women's Euros this summer, World Cup qualifying. The World Juniors won't feel the same without Russia, but it's the right thing to do, Mike. But it's 
I, it's a tricky thing with individual athletes, isn't it? Because they could make a big statement and write something on their Instagram, but who's to say they? it's really tough to kick out tennis players and golfers and figure skaters when they, you know, they're individual athletes. They don't represent necessarily Russia. They, they play independently. I don't think we think, well, Rafael Nadal's representing Spain or Roger Federer's representing Switzerland. They don't really, that's not what that sport is. No, and, and a lot of these guys actually don't even live in Russia anymore. They, you know, mm-hmm. A lot of the tennis players live in Monaco. Uh, the hockey players live in the cities that they that play in, and you know, they might go back in the summer sometimes, but it's, uh, they, have, uh, they, they really don't represent the country the same way that uh, obviously Putin does. And, and it is a difficult thing to do, to be able to say that, well, you know, to brand everyone with the same, uh, with the same brush as, as Putin, it is really hard. But, you know, like, like the funny one is, is we were talking about was Ovechkin, who still has a picture of him and Putin as, the, as his profile pic on his Instagram page. No. Is, yeah, take a <laughs> uh, they're, they're boys. They're boys, all right. Yeah. Now, whether he has said, well, you know, I'm all for peace, he gave a really a, a garbage answer about it, exactly. Uh, but you think about it, and, and just read the room. You might support Putin. You might be friends with him, but take down the picture. It doesn't look good. And, you know, today I was reading this morning that Ovechkin's lost a couple of sponsors. Yeah. Uh, he's not going to be in CCM ads. He's not going to be in an ad for a financial institution. Uh, they're getting rid of all that stuff. And, you know, if, and that's kind of the way I think it should be. If uh, You can't ban these guys from playing in the NHL, but you can say, you know what, I might boo you. I might, uh, you know, take away, not, not pay for, not support the sponsors that support you and then you lose the sponsors. And you know what, if I'm a player on an opposing team and I'm really, really upset about it, we've seen it before. Who's to say that somebody's not going to take a run at another player. Yeah. Politics. Um, That's hockey. Politics has crossed over into team sports. uh, That's for sure. Uh, Hey Kelly, I'm sure you'll address this over the next few days. Uh, Vax pass gone yesterday. It felt good to go like to the gym yesterday and just not worry about where my driver's license was, not worry about my QR code. Um, how normal do you see life coming to us in the next few weeks? January and February, just that was 59 days. We never, ever want to relive again. And yet we keep saying that like a, like a broken record. How ready are our, our 640 listeners, Mike's viewers on TV? How ready are we to live again, almost regardless of circumstance, do you feel? Um, I think everybody's different. I mean, I think everybody's ready to move forward, at least to some extent, but you know, talk of getting back to normal or doing normal things. I honestly, I can't, I don't even know what that means because I don't mm-hmm. know what normal looks like today. If normal means dropping all precautions and resuming our pre-COVID lives, then no, I don't think everybody's ready for that. If normal means dinner at a friend's house, drinks on a patio, then yes, I think people are ready. Um, you're going to find more takers today mm-hmm. than even a few months ago. But as far as you know, people being divided on, on what they feel safe with. I think that it, that exists. And I think everybody has been, you know, debating COVID from the very beginning and we're never going to get a consensus. Um, so what we have to do is move forward with our version of normal and be respectful that that is not where everyone's coming from. That's what I really hope for is that we realize that our problems in this area of the world are not very big it's an, mm-hmm. and we should show charity and respect to other people. And if that means you're not comfortable with something that I'm comfortable with, then just respect that. Yeah, I'd love I'd love for that to be the case. I, I hope it is. Mike, how, how do you see it? And then certainly as a parent, you probably you hear a lot of divergent opinions about, you know, protection. And especially I don't have a younger kid that's not vaccinated. I was able to get teenagers vaccinated right away. So I'm empathetic to people who have a three year old or a four year old. And they say, you got to you got to consider us in in this equation still. And I get that. Well, you know, I, I have a hard time with it because, uh, you know, I want to see everything relaxed. I want to see us go back to normal. And but like Kelly, I'm not entirely sure what that looks like. But you know, I'm always telling my daughter. You know, she gets in the car and she's wearing her mask. I said, take your mask off. And uh, she says, you know, well, I'm wearing it because it keeps my mouth face warm. I'm like, I don't want you wearing that all the time. Please, we're in a car together. Just take it off. <laughs> and I'm afraid that she's going to be far too attached to the mask than, than I would like, and that she's going to have a hard time taking it off. And, and I worry about the implications with that, um, mm-hmm. obviously, as, as, as a father. Um, but, you know, I, I'm mostly worried about the extremism on both sides of this, of this story. I mm-hmm. mean, you have the people who are 
uh, ardent, uh, you have to wear masks everywhere and go crazy with it. And it's okay to, 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 we have to wear masks outside around people. And I'm like, okay, you're, you're going way too far. But then you also have these people like these from the, these protest groups who are now doing slow rolls through various Ontario cities. Um, there was one in uh, St. Catharines, one in Peterborough, one in Essex County last weekend. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, and these guys are just, are, are, they don't believe in science. They're so, they don't even know what anything about our government or about how our system works because they're getting all their information from alt-right and right-wing sites in the United States. They're, they're flying American flags, Putin flags, yeah. not Putin flags, Trump flags rather. And okay, I'm not listening to you either. I really am not. More than anybody else, I'm not listening to you because those people just are irrational and complete, and they want everybody to go back to completely normal and pretend it didn't happen. Well, guess what? We don't have a wand. We don't have a magic wand that's going to make everything normal again. We have to go back and be sensible about it, respect others. And unfortunately, people on the extremes on either side of it don't. Yeah. And, 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 I, and I think they're the loudest. I think they're the loudest. Yeah. And I think there's probably, you know, 80 percent of us, Kelly and, and Mike, uh, we, we all fit in that mushy middle and we've all felt so mm-hmm. conflicted over times. We've had Kelly. I know you've referenced unvaccinated friends before. I had a guy in my wedding party who just said, I, I want this to be my choice and, and that of my family's. And I would point out that he has a daughter that suffers from autism. And so I, I can't tell him what his reality is. He's telling me what his is. It's just God, there's been so much conflict in our uh, in our souls over this for 24 months. Yeah, I don't think wearing a mask is a big deal, though. I'm, I'm still on that side. Yeah. It's not a big deal for now. It's not going to be forever. It's, you know, look, the Canadian hockey team, the women's hockey team, the gold medal team played wearing masks. Clearly, we can function. Mike's got a different situation on his hand. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mike, you might want to try reverse psychology. Always <laughs> My mom would be like, you hey, put on your hat, your winter hat. Every time you leave the house and zip right up, you'd round the corner on your way to school, whip off the hat, undo the jacket, and make sure your cougar boots were tied uh, with the tongue down appropriately before you got to the bus stop. That so seems reasonable, yeah. Things will work you itself know, out. Themselves out. I- I went rock climbing on the weekend and, uh, you know, they have a mask rule in there and it was horrible. I, I don't know how the hockey team did it because I was climbing with a mask on. Well, and they didn't whine, was, Mike. Start there. Oh, yeah, they did. I, I, start, I started to whine, actually, because it was horrible. But, Remember who they but beat I, also. They beat the Russian women. Uh, and so the <laughs> Russian women, that, that, was, that was the last time we ever uh, will we'll see them play hockey again, maybe against Canada for uh, a good half decade or a decade. And they, and they were wearing masks also. and They didn't do quite as well. But Bottom line, context. How bad is this? People say, oh, my God, this is about freedom, freedom. No, no, no. no. It's, remember, it's an inconvenience. If you say it's freedom, you, you should slap yourself and look at you in the mirror and say it again and then keep on slapping yourself until you realize, oh, wait a minute. Take what? a look what's going on in, in, uh, in, in Ukraine right now. The definition of freedom is not yeah. that. This yeah. is an inconvenience. Do people yeah, like sure. wearing them? No. But it's not the end of the world. No, I have no problem making, uh, you know, with going into grocery store. No, I don't have to wear it eight hours a day. I see, I see yeah. waiters, and I'm like, I don't know, man. Like, and then 95, Kelly, you and I have both waited tables. That's a long shift. If you're going 4.30 p.m. Yeah. till 2 a.m. with a mask what? on, that's not a grocery store. I actually have another reason for wanting masks to stick around. It has been really financially... Uh, amazing makeup costs down. <laughs> I can go out and put that sucker on. I don't care what I look like. I don't care who sees me. It's a gift to win. Yeah, there is that. What we're, what we're going to put into our gas, uh, our gas tanks, we're saving on uh, Maybelline products and cologne. Drolet and I have eased off on the cologne. I know over the last. Uh, <laughs> you and the Dracar girl. Come on. <laughs> that's uh, that's Blue Stratus to you, Mike. Uh, that's uh, and Stetson. Yeah, I still I still carry a lot of the high school colognes. I'm really big into those. Kelly will be. Li- if I shave two days, if I shave two days in a row, it's a big deal now. And uh, they. <laughs> The mask and the mask also allows me to make faces uh, at people. And, oh yeah, well yeah, it's not as easy to roll your eyes. That's the problem right there. Uh, and there's probably been a lot of people that have asked other people out, uh, you know, based on eyes and and the top of their nose in the last 24 <laughs> months. Thank God, none of the three of us have had to deal with those scenarios. Uh, loved having uh, this segment, uh, Kelly. We'll be listening at nine today. Thank you so much. All right, speak for yourself. By the way, I've been asked out numerous times. <laughs> That's that. Thanks so much for listening to Toronto Today. We're back with a live show tomorrow, Thursday, 
uh, March the 3rd, between 5.30 and 9 o'clock with myself, Sheba Siddiqui, Gord Rennie, and our uh, esteemed news anchor. We, we look to gain esteem just by being around him, Dave Bradley. Uh, check us out on 640toronto.com or the Radio Player Canada app. And thanks for listening here on the podcast.